Well, we are, as Linda mentioned, in a new territory here at Trinity Church. Our lead pastor uh, and his wife, Christine, who was our campus pastor, we had this celebration commissioning yesterday, so there's a kind of a sense of finality. Um, even though their last day was on February 4th, there's a sense of finality to their being done and uh, gone from, from Trinity as pastors. Um, but I believe so strongly, as, as do many of you, that this time is not simply a time of just waiting for a new pastor. This is not simply a time of inactivity. I believe God desires to do something during this time, that God is doing something during this time. God is stirring something within us to know him, to spend time with him, to fellowship with each other in him, and to be part of bringing others close to him. But I believe this is not just for a few, not just for the pocket of people who join in the prayer meetings or who are actively serving in ministry. This is not just for the staff and for the board. I believe God wants to do something in all of us throughout the whole church, both campuses, all congregations. And as I prayed and discussed with other church members, staff and board members in preparation for this sermon and this series that we are beginning today, there's this overwhelming sense that, yes, God is doing something among us. God is calling us to something. God has a very specific place he desires to take us to as a church. And I'm not talking about a new program, a new campaign, a new mission. I'm not going to introduce some new big project today. Those will come in time. No, God is calling us to something deeper than that. God is zeroing in on the being over the doing right now on who we are before he pushes us to do something. God desires that we focus on the who first and then let the what flow out of that. See, God is not just interested in us serving in ministry just to keep the church organization running without first guiding us to discover who it is that we are serving and who we are being and who we are becoming as we serve and as we work. I believe God desires to use this season, this time, while we are in this interim phase, to reset our hearts and reset our minds to where he wants them to be, where he always intended them to be. He wants to get our attention today, church. So today I'm asking you, my church family, if you will journey with me. And I'm asking if you would be willing to lay aside everything else, your opinions, what you've heard, what you grew up hearing, what your experiences might have led you to believe, to lay that aside and possibly to discover something new about who this God is, about who God says you are, or maybe to discover in a new way. Over the next few weeks, you will hear from me, but you're also going to hear from some of our other church members sharing this pulpit and sharing from the heart of God who he is, and who he says you are. So today we kick off a new five-part series called Who? A journey in knowing God and ourselves. There's a passage of scripture that Gloria and I both had on our hearts for you, our church family, during our sabbatical at the end of last year. We were enrolled in a class for 10 weeks, and what we experienced while we were there, it, it transformed us. Um, 
I'm not going to stand here and say that everything has been perfect and we have never made any mistakes since that time and we are completely uh, complete. <laughs> um, we are still uh, works in progress, but God did something in us during that time. And we want you to know, my wife and I both, we are convinced that what we learned, what we experienced during that time, it wasn't just for us. So many things we learn and so many uh, insights and revelations that we, we can't just keep to ourselves. You know, we were on sabbatical from the work of ministry, so we weren't supposed to be thinking about ministry, but thinking about all of you, our church family, that's not ministry. That's family. And how can we not think about family? At first, I wasn't entirely sure why this verse spoke to us for you, Trinity Church, but as I studied and as I, I studied in the light of Jesus and his life and his words, it became clearer to me, and I pray that it will become clearer to you also. In this passage, God is speaking to the people of Israel a message of hope and newness, but there's a sad backstory to this message. Even though God had established Israel as his people, they strayed from him again and again and again, and so again and again and again, God had to bring his people back to him. Why did he do that? Why doesn't God just give up on his people? Why? Well, because they are his people. And God is a faithful God, faithful not just to his people, but he's faithful to himself. He's faithful to who he is. Some of what the people of Israel had done, it's pretty serious. They had defiled their own land that God had given them. They were shedding blood needlessly. They formed idols to worship instead of worshiping God. And when foreigners from other countries saw them, they derided the name of God because of the way that God's people were living. Parents, I want to ask you a question. How do you feel when your kids do exactly the opposite of what you just told them to do right in front of your face? What do you want to do? Don't shout it out loud, but I know, you're, I know you think it. Thus, right? Or even worse, how do you feel, parents, when you warn your kids not to do something because they could get hurt or even disgraced, and then they go and they do the very thing that you told them not to do? Parents, there's a, there's a feeling of anger, but as your kids get older and your kids start making those decisions, that's when you start to get heartbroken because you tell your kids, don't do it, and they do it, and you see them. <sighs> Parents, how do you feel? What do you want to do? Do you want to grab your kids by the face and say, look at me. What did I say? God is telling his people, enough. All the nations and you are going to know that I am the Lord when I am proved holy through you, he says in Ezekiel. And then comes the passage for today and for this series. And it comes from the book of Ezekiel, prophet Ezekiel, chapter 36. And this is going to be the theme scripture for today and for this series. This is where we are going to kind of camp and let God speak to us out of. This is what God says to his people in Ezekiel 36, 24 through 28. For I will take you out of the nations, and I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. 
I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities, from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to follow my laws. Then, then, you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people. And I will be your God. You might be puzzled right now as to how does this passage about unfaithful Israel possibly relate to us here at Trinity Church? I mean, you're all decent people, right? You're all here in church right now, so you can't be that bad, right? And please understand, the goal of this message in this series is not for us to discover about how bad you are, how sinful you are. That's not supposed to be your takeaway for today. But the focus is on what God promises to do for his people. And I want to bring you back to that question that I asked you at the start. Are you willing to lay aside everything else and possibly discover something new about who this God is and who this God says you are? So what is it that God promises to do for his people? What do these things mean? Let's look at these. He promises to gather his people back into their own land again. In other words... He is bringing his people home. He's bringing his people home. He promises to sprinkle clean water on them and that they will be clean. He promises to cleanse them from all their impurities and from all their idols. He is making them clean. He promises to give them a new heart and put a new spirit in them. He will take out their hard heart made of stone and replace it with a living, beating, sensitive heart of flesh. He's replacing their heart. He promises to put his spirit in them, moving them to follow his decrees and be careful to keep his laws. He is teaching them obedience. And he sums it up by promising that they will be his people and he will be their God. He is giving them their identity back. And I want you to understand that everything he talks about in this passage, it has a spiritual meaning. Yes, God actually wanted to bring his people physically back to the land that he had given them, but the ultimate goal is to bring them back to himself. To bring them back to himself in relationship. And maybe they did need to be physically clean, but God is talking about the spiritual cleansing, right? You know what I'm talking about? The people of Israel, they would have understood this because they had in their law that they needed to be sprinkled with water to cleanse any of their outward impurities, right? That they, they, would, have, they would have known that. The idols, right? The snares that would have tripped them up. But that outward sign of the sprinkling of water was only reflective of the inner cleansing that only the Spirit of God could do. When he talks about giving them a new heart, of course he's not talking about a literal heart transplant. But we we all know what it means, right? When somebody says things like, my heart beats only for him or her. Right? Or when someone says something like, I have my heart set on that. Or when we say things like, follow your heart. He's giving his people a heart, a soul, and a spirit that beats only for him. That is set on him, that follows only him. That's the new heart. 
When he says he will move them to follow his decrees and be careful to keep his laws, he doesn't mean like, like, a, like a puppet master moving these lifeless dummies who have no choice in the matter. No, it's, 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 it's more intimate than that. He will put his spirit in them, bring them closer to him than hands and feet so that their will and their choice matches with his. And, and this last promise that he gives them that they will be his people and he will be their God. That's not just another item on the list. This is the ultimate goal of what God is promising to do. Then he says, once I have done these things, then you will be my people and I will be your God. Then you will know who I am, God says, and you will know who you were always meant to be. Now at this point, my Old Testament scholar friends will tell me, Johnny, be careful these promises were spoke to the people of Israel, not to us, the church here in America in 2018. So you can't just take that promise and say, that this is for us. And yeah, I get that. Like I said before, we're not all defilers and idolaters, and we're not all shedding blood needlessly. I understand that the application only goes so far, and we are not like Israel was at this time. They were literally exiles from their country that God gave them. They were literally exiles, and God was bringing them back to the place that he had given them. But I do believe God wants to do this for us today. It, is it not true that God is always on the move, looking to bring people to himself so that they will be his people and he will be their God? Is that not true? And family, can we be honest for some moments? Can we really sit here today and say, no, my heart never strays from God? Can we really claim with one voice, no, there are no idols in my life? Can we honestly say, no, I never put my trust in anything other than God? Can we honestly say that? Of course, we know we are all susceptible to this and more, myself included. And God knows that too. So here's the connecting point. You want to know what the connecting point is between this, these words of God to the people of Israel and to us sitting here in Monterey Park in 2018 at Trinity Church? What's the connecting point? Or rather, who is the connecting point? Who is the one that makes this all make sense? Who's the one that brings it together for us today? It's Jesus. See, without Jesus, none of this happens. It's not completed. Without Jesus, this doesn't happen for the people of Israel, and it doesn't happen for us. Jesus is the one. Jesus is the only one who fulfills all of this. Jesus is the one who helps us to understand what it means to be his people and that he is our God. So I want to share a story about Jesus that will tie this teaching, this promise from God, together in our hearts today. We're going to look at John chapter 4, and I'm actually going to ask you um, whether you have it on your phone, if you brought a physical Bible with you, um, if you want to pull out a Bible from in front of your seat. Um, they are the brown books, not the blue books. Um, if you want to pull it out uh, of the front of your seat. But I want to ask you to go ahead and open up a Bible in some form to John chapter 4. 
Because we're going to be reading a, a, a relatively long passage, and uh, rather than having all these things flashing up on the screen, let's just read it together. Let's just read the story together. This is one of the, this is a, one of the longest one-on-one conversations that Jesus ever recorded to have had, a conversation with a Samaritan woman at the well. Let's read this. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea, and he went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Now, I want to point out, before we continue, those words, Jesus had to go through Samaria. You know, there were, there were other ways that he could have taken to get back to where he wanted to go, to his home. Samaria was more direct on the way to Nazareth, but it was also a little bit of a hike. Plus, Jews didn't usually want to go to Samaria. The Samaritans, as a people, were originally descended from Joseph, who was the great-grandson of Abraham and one of the 12 tribes of Israel. But the Samaritans claimed that the true place of worship was on their mountain, Mount Gerizim. And the Jews claimed that it was in Jerusalem. So as a result, both of these people were taught, you don't associate with them. If you were a Jew, you don't associate with those Samaritans. If you were a Samaritan, you don't associate with those Jews because they worship in the wrong place. They are false. They are bad, and you don't talk to them. So Jesus had to go through Samaria? Yes, because Jesus came to show us the heart of God the Father, and God the Father will stop at nothing to accomplish his will. So he had to go through Samaria for the reason that we will discover. Jesus travels to the Samaritan town of Sychar. He's tired, so he sits down by the well. It's about noon. Let's continue. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. How can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. What is Jesus doing talking to a Samaritan woman? They would have both been taught that they weren't supposed to be associating with each other. Also, she's a woman who was there without her husband, and Jesus was there by himself. They weren't supposed to be talking to each other. That was not customary. And why was she going to draw water at noontime? Usually women would go to draw water from the well later in the afternoon when it was cooler. What or whom do you think she might have been avoiding? 
Why would she go at a time that she figured no one else would be there? And you can tell she doesn't quite get what Jesus is saying yet. He mentions living water inside her welling up to eternal life, but she's not thinking spiritually. Or maybe she's still avoiding something. Maybe she's avoiding going deeper. And Jesus continues. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. There it is. That's why she's been avoiding contact with anyone at the well. That's why she seems to be avoiding getting into a deeper discussion. That's why. I imagine living in a smallish town, having had five different husbands, she probably had made a few enemies in that time. There's probably people who knew her by that time. With having had five husbands, I would imagine she's probably well known. I don't imagine that there were many women in that city who had had five husbands. Now, it's important to note that as a woman at this time, she didn't have the ability to decide to have a divorce for herself. Women could not actually choose to get a divorce at that time. It had to be the husband who decided to divorce her, and then the husband would carry that through. She couldn't choose to have a divorce. The husband had to present her with a certificate of divorce. So that means either she had five different husbands decide that she had done something bad enough that they were all going to divorce her, or they all died, or maybe a little bit of both. We don't know. We don't know what happened. All we know is that she had had five husbands, and the man she's currently living with is not her husband. So six. That's where this woman comes into the scene dealing with. This is her response. 19, verse 19. Sir, I love this response. Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And it continues in verse 28. When Jesus' disciples returned, it says, Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come and see a man who has told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. You know what I love about Jesus in this story? Even when she tries to change the subject, he brings it back to something that she needs to hear. Christians, 
Church, we should all take note of, how, of the way that Jesus brings the gospel, the way that Jesus does evangelism right here, okay? The good news, because when he gives it to her, it really sounds like good news to her, right? Imagine if she was asking all these questions and, oh, living water, and what are you doing? And, oh, we worship on this mountain or that mountain. And he's bringing up all these questions. She's bringing up these questions. Imagine if Jesus' response was, God loves you and he doesn't want you to go to hell, so say the sinner's prayer right now so you don't have to go to hell. Would you like to pray the sinner's prayer with me right now? Imagine if that had been his response, you know, the, the cookie-cutter answer, what, hey, do you want to do this right now? Jesus met her where she was at, exactly where she was at. Do you see what happens here? Do you see what's happening right here in front of us? This is Ezekiel 36 happening to this woman. What did, what, did Je- what did God promise he was going to do to his people? Bring them home, right? Jesus was bringing this woman closer to God than she might have ever been spiritually back to the place where God had prepared for her, being his people. He offered her living water to cleanse her, to well up into eternal life within her. There was this newness about her as if her hard and closed heart had been replaced with a new heart of flesh, sensitive and open to God. She suddenly begins to walk according to God's way and God's will, doing the work of an evangelist right in her city. Jesus didn't even have to tell her what to do. There was no training seminar, no book she had to read. She just began proclaiming what Jesus had done for her. This woman, who had been married and divorced five times, was now living with a man, not her husband. A lot of scholars believe she might have even been like a concubine. Suddenly, she has a new purpose, a new life. Suddenly, she's been given a new identity. And and what was it she said to get the people to start coming out of their houses toward Jesus? What was it she said? Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? I want you to notice in the Ezekiel passage, right? God had just finished telling the Israelites everything they ever did. You've done this, you strayed from me in this, you sinned in this way, you've done all of these things, everything they ever did. And yet, he promised to redeem them. He promised to save them. Why is it so important that he told her everything she ever did? Is that it? He he just told her that he knew about her messy past life and her messy present life? What does that mean? Read into that. Put yourself in her shoes. What do you think that would have meant for her? Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did, and he still offered me the living water. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did, and he told me that I could be a true worshiper if I worship God in the spirit and in truth. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did, and that I could actually have the spirit living inside me, and that I can worship God in truthfulness, in honesty, hiding nothing. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did, and he said he was the Messiah, and he was talking to me. And if he was talking to me, imagine what he'll say to you. Come and see, could this be the Messiah? Could this be the one that we've been waiting for? You will be my people, and I will be your God. And you know what, when I realized this, I just got, I got goosebumps when I realized this, 
when God talked about this in Ezekiel, he was talking specifically to the people of Israel. But those people, the Jews, they wouldn't have included the Samaritans in this. But Jesus had other plans. He has other plans. Jesus says, I'm not just bringing back everyone who sits there smugly saying, oh yeah, I'm God's people. I'm bringing back the people who keep being told they are not God's people. I'm bringing back the people who who have been told that they don't belong and they're worshiping all wrong or that they don't have the right to worship at all. I'm bringing those people back to me. They will be my people and I will be their God. He's opening it up to the world. I'm bringing those people back to me. They will be my people. They are no longer those people. They are now my people. Church, last night I was preparing for this message today and I began to cry out to the Lord for breakthrough today. And I began to pray for breakthrough and I imagined all your faces sitting right here in this place. I began crying out to God about some of the struggles that I know you are having, and I began crying out to God about the struggles that only you and God know about, or maybe you and a couple of people. Church, do you hear God speaking to you today? God wants you to hear him speaking to you today and asking you, do you know who I really am? That you are my beloved and redeemed people? What have you been hiding from? Who are the people you avoid? Where are the places you avoid? What are the things you avoid? Because it's just too painful. Where are the places that you've lost hope of things ever changing or getting better? What are those rooms in your heart that you've kept locked away? Those places where you're determined never to go and you're not going to let anyone see. What are those places that you're afraid to let God see? Or where are the places where you've been hiding? Do you hide in your work? Do you hide at home? Do you hide while you're busy doing ministry? Do you know, beloved of God, Jesus is already in those places? Do you know that he already sees those places? Do you know that God is ready to meet you right there? Do you know that Jesus is always ready to love you even if your life is filled with those places and your heart may have so many padlocks on it you can't even count them? My church family, there are far too many of us who have been living for far too long standing at a distance from God. There are far too many of us who have been living with uncleanness festering in our lives There are far too many of us who have been living with hard hearts of stone. There are far too many of us who have been afraid to let God in. And this same Jesus who met this woman exactly where she was with all of her messiness and all of her past and all of her questions, this same Jesus is ready to meet you today. This same Jesus is ready to meet you today and he's ready to show you the heart of the perfect Heavenly Father. He's ready to restore your identity to you as God's people. He's ready to give you a new heart. Yes, many of you, all, most of you may have believed in Jesus already. You're a Christian, you're a disciple, but do you know that you are God's beloved? Do you know that God's love for you is complete and that you are accepted no matter what? Do you know that this God is able to look at you and see all of your uncleanness and still love you more than you can imagine? That he sees 
his child underneath all of that uncleanness. Do you know that there is no place this God won't go to find you or meet you? Do you know that? I'm not just talking about in your head. Do you know this for your own life? That you know, that you know, that you know this is who God is and this is who you are in him. I want to share with you what Jesus did for me. One day during our sabbatical, Gloria and I had this big blowout fight just before we went to class. Yeah, come on, let's be real. It happens to everyone. Okay, Gloria and I have fights. So we were mad all the way through the first half of class, right? And we were sitting next to each other, but I don't know if any of you are, are, are couples and you know what it's like to be sitting next to the person that you're mad at. Is this yours? I don't know. <laughs> try not to touch each other, right? Try to, try to move as far this way as you can without actually like physically turning, you know, all the way around. I'm at all the way through the first half of class. And I got so upset at one point, I just walked out. You know, like a big baby. I just got up and I stomped out of the room. And Gloria follows me out. She says, why did you do that? You embarrassed me. And in my frustration and my hurt, and just kind of just speaking whatever was there, I said, I feel like this little kid who can't do anything right. I was blaming her for making me feel that way. So we decided to stuff it down and just go back to class. And we sit down, and the first thing our lecturer says when we get back to class is, okay, in this portion of the class, we're going to deal with forgiveness. <laughs> Wow. Good timing. He did this little demonstration with us. Actually, I want to do the demonstration right now. And, and I'm sharing with you what God showed to me. This may apply for some of you, and it may not, but I'm just sharing with you what God taught me. I'm going to ask for uh, four volunteers. Um, volunteer, yeah, come, come, on up, come on up. Three more. Okay, one more. Okay, Megan, all right, got it. Got it. Okay, so Demi, I want you to hold this end of the rope, okay? And let's, let's be careful because we don't have much space here, but, okay, and we're all going to hold this end of the rope. Now, the, this is the demonstration that he, that he showed us. So everybody, uh, Jim, Megan, why don't you go ahead and grab this rope? Okay, we're all going to grab it and make sure you can get a firm grip on it because we're going we're gonna to pull the heck out of this rope, okay? When, when, when I say go. So the demonstration was, this is an illustration of forgiveness, that when we hold on to things that have been done to us, or even things that we've done, right? Forgiving ourselves. We hold on to unforgiveness. Pretend like Demi is somebody who has forgiveness to give, right? These are all of the things that come along with holding on to forgiveness, holding on to unforgiveness, right? What, what are some of the things that, that come along with holding on to unforgiveness? Is there not bitterness? Is there not a hardness of heart that comes along with this? Resentment? Doesn't it even sometimes make you sick to your stomach or give you headaches thinking about how angry you are? All of us, the four of us, we are all of the things that come along with unforgiveness. And we're going to do a little tug of war right now. Demi is going to try to fight. 
all of the things that come along with unforgiveness, and we are going to pull our hardest the other direction. Ready? Let's do this. Go. Pull, Demi. Come on. Pull. Pull. Pull, Demi. Come on. You're not trying. Come on. Pull, Demi. All right. I don't want you to hurt your hands. You get the idea, right? Now, now let's, let's do this again. Demi, I want you to hold this again. The illustration is we need to find a way when the tug of war wants to start, instead of trying to play that game because we will never win, we'll always lose if we do that, we need to find a way toward freedom. We need to be able to just let it go. Thank you. Thank you. Now, if only it were that easy to just let it go. If only. So he taught us about what we need to do in order to be able to forgive, in order to be able to let go. Of course, remembering that forgiveness is not a usually just a one-time thing, but that when we think of those who have hurt us, and I'm talking about the people who have deeply hurt us, we will likely have to forgive again and again and again. What did Jesus say? How many times are we supposed to forgive? 70 times 7, right? A day. <laughs> if necessary, a day. We forgive again and again and again. So this is what he told us. These are the steps. We need to identify those who have hurt us and how they hurt us. And so he led us through this demonstration, right? And he said, I want each of you to come up and I want you to hold this rope. And if you have unforgiveness in your heart, you're going to hold this rope and you're going to identify those who have hurt you and how they hurt you. Then we need to identify what are the ways that we responded to that hurt in ways that are not good. What are some of the unhealthy habits or addictions that formed as a way to cope with that pain? What are some of the things that developed in our lives and our personalities that are not good because of the pain that we experienced? And then we need to speak it. We need to say the words, I forgive that person or those people. And we had to include ourselves because a lot of times when forgiveness is needed, there's also somewhere in there where we need to forgive ourselves. There's a lot of shame. How many of you know that? There's a lot of things that we take onto ourselves and we believe about ourselves that are not ever anything that God would say. And then, when I have said that I forgive, I let go of the rope. You know, I've spent the last 10 plus years recovering from the cult that I grew up in. But I thought in those years I had done a lot of reflection and healing and, and, and forgiving. I didn't realize that I only kind of scratched the surface and that it wasn't just about forgiving and growing past what had been done to me and the addictions that I did develop in order to, to deal with the pain that I experienced. I needed to replace those lies that I had heard for so many years with the truth of what God says. I needed a new identity. I needed to know that I was God's people and that he was my God. I needed the revelation. I am yours and you are mine. So I went and I took that dang rope and I spent a good 10 minutes pouring my heart out in front of these class. And these are people that I hardly knew. Confessing, pouring out 
the ways that I had been hurt and the ways that I had responded in an unhealthy way. And I spoke forgiveness over those who had hurt me and I let go of the shame I felt in myself. And before I knew it, I was curled up in a ball on the ground in tears. Nearly 20 years of abuse and manipulation and lies that my family and I experienced, it was just all exposed out there. But then our lecturer, this man you see here by the name of Bruce Thompson, he, he completed that time. He, I believe he spoke not with his own words or thoughts. He spoke with the words and heart of God. And he stood me up and he took me in his arms and he prayed for me. And I will never forget the words that he said. He said, I, I now declare that you will no longer live according to the lies You will no longer live by what you were told that you were. He said, I, I now call you Prince Johnny. Prince Johnny, who's that? I still feel weird about people calling me pastor. Just call me Johnny. Who is this Prince Johnny? It's me. It's who I am. That's what God calls me. And his final words of that time as he embraced me with the embrace of God. He said, welcome home, Prince Johnny. Welcome home. Now, I will not claim that I have never had a bad moment since then. I still need to forgive and be forgiven again and again and again. I still need to remember that I am forgiven and not to hold that shame over my own head. I still need to speak truth to myself so I don't believe the lies. That's work that's still happening inside of me. And there's still that tendency in me to want to go back to the old ways of coping with the pain. Yes, it's still there and I still need to deal with it. But I know that I will never be the same. And I know, like I've never known before, who I am. Because I know who this great God is. I am convinced that this is what Jesus meant when he said, let the little children come to me. I truly believe that in each of us, Sitting right here, yes, even the oldest, even the, the most, the grumpiest, even the, more, the, the least emotionally expressive person in this room, in every single one of us, there is still that child who just wants to be loved, who just wants to belong, who wants to feel valued. And some of us have become so hard over the years. Maybe you feel you don't need all of this touchy, feely nonsense. Some of you have believed the lies that were spoken over you at a young age. Some of you carry the burden of shame from your past. Maybe you even carry shame from things that are not so distant in the past as you would like. And some of us are doing our best to put on a good face, keep it together, and not let anyone see the cracks. No matter what your personality, no matter what your mode of operation, I truly believe that that kid is still in there. Kid is still in there. And that kid will come out sometimes. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such of these as these. In another situation, Jesus actually said, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Can you come to Jesus today? Like a little child comes to a parent they know loves them, looking for that love once again. 
Can you come to Jesus today? Can you bring your broken pieces? Can you bring your imperfect living? Can you bring your destructive habits? Can you bring your hurt places and your questions and your doubts and your fears and your skepticism? Can you come to Jesus with all of that? And just like a child who simply wants to be loved and to belong, can you dare to find that longing fulfilled in Jesus? Can you discover, can you dare to discover who is this God who loves and accepts you unconditionally? Can you believe it? This God who is ready to show you who you are. I want you to listen to the words of author David Benner from his book, Surrender to Love. Grace is totally alien to human psychology. We want to get our house in order and then let God love and accept us. The psychology of works righteousness and self-certification is foundational to the human psyche and totally at odds with grace. The deep-seated way that humans resist divine grace helps us understand something about the fear of love. While some people fear any love, what most of us resist is unconditional love perfect love. And the reason for this is that such love demands surrender. And he goes on to say, perfect love meets me where I am and asks only that I open my heart and receive the love for which I long. Are you ready, church? Jesus Christ has come to reveal who this God is and who we are in him. He wants you to experience that today. Now today, instead of closing in prayer, I want to I share a song with you, and it's going to be through, through, uh, through video as we, as we close the sermon today. The lyrics are going to be up on the screen for this song, and I want you to take this time to have a moment with Jesus. Where are those rooms? Let him show you. Where are those rooms in your heart that you've kept locked away? Where are those places where that little kid inside of you still just wants to know that you are loved. Can you open your heart to what Jesus is telling you right now? So let's just listen to this song, read the words, and I want you to hear this. This song is meant to be the words of God speaking to you. So I want you to hear God singing this song over you. Can we um can we mute this? I'm just gonna play it off the drop off, I think. Cross, and you were the one that I was thinking of when. 
speaking to you today, right now, I'd like to ask you to stand with me. And I'm not going to put a label on it if he's speaking to you this way or that way, just if he is speaking to you, something in what I've said, something in what he has spoken through me. Church, do you know this is God's heart for you? Do you know how much your father loves you? He's not interested in just 
getting you to do stuff at church. It's to keep you busy. I have a dream. I have a, a, a hope that I believe is from God. Trinity, that we are going to be a church that does what we do. All of the ministries and outreach and projects and discipling, everything that we do, all of the service, all the many hours that you pour in, but that we are going to be a church who does what we do out of this place of knowing that we are loved and loving God in return. Everyone from our finance team to our kidmen workers to our worship team to the people who set things up on Sundays, all of our congregations, our food team, that's everything that we do. That nothing will be done out of compulsion or a sense of mere duty that we will function out of a sense, a deep understanding that we are loved. I wanted to just um, just pray for Johnny. I've been telling him since his sabbatical that there's just something different about him. Uh, there's just like more authority in him, like God did something in him, and we haven't had time to connect. Johnny and I have been accountability partners for going on two years now. And I just felt uh, just really blessed by you, brother. And I just wanted to uh, just seal some of the work the Lord has done in you. And I feel like that, that's why we send people on sabbatical, right, so that the Lord could pour into them and do something in them. And Johnny, being our pastor, comes back, and he's just a different, different person, and we're being led uh, just in a different way. Uh, I just wanted just to bless him as he's blessing us. Can we do that? Jesus, I thank you that you love Johnny. Uh, you love Johnny not because he's a pastor, not because of what he has done, but because of who he is. He is fearfully and wonderfully made in your image. I thank you, Lord, that you care about him enough uh, to not let him stay in unforgiveness, God, that you pour into him, God, that you let him, you challenge him to let go of those things uh, that weigh him down, things that have happened in the past. God, I thank you for his sabbatical. Lord, we missed him, Lord. God, I missed him. And, but I thank you. I thank you so much that who, uh, who he's becoming uh, is, is just more uh, in your likeness, in your image, God. You're cleansing him of all the things that he just doesn't need. And Father, I thank you that um, he continues to lead us. And now, just in a different way, Father, I pray that we would respond uh, by letting go of the things that weigh us down. And God, that we would be teachable uh, to the word that he's delivered this morning. Would you pour into him? Lord, he didn't have to uh, share as vulnerably as he did this morning. But I thank you that he did. And I pray that we would continue seeing your work in him. And that you would continue growing us in our love for you and our love for each other and in our love for this community and in Rowan Heights. Form us and shape us more into your image, Lord. We thank you and we praise you, Lord. Lord, I pray over your people right now as they are standing. Lord, I see an entire church body that's standing and saying, God is speaking to us today. 
God is, God is saying something to us specifically, individually and as a church. So God, we trust that you will do your perfect work in us, that you're going to bring us to that place of knowing who we are, knowing who you are, and that everything that we do as a church, Lord, I know so many of us are feeling exhausted, burned out even. What do we do about that? God, we need a love revolution. We need a revolution of your love to know and be known. That's what we need from you, God. And you are doing that right now in this place. So just as Abner prayed, I pray over my church family. Would you seal this work in them? Would you seal the work in their hearts that you are doing, Lord God? Don't let them walk out of this place and just forget what they've heard. Let it continue to, 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 to pick at them, to nag at them, to bother them like a rock in their shoe. That, the, there's, there's a, that you're, you're opening our hearts more and more and more. And maybe, maybe we crack the door open a little bit today, God. But I believe you want to throw that door wide. I believe you want to rip the door off its hinges. That there is no door that separates us from you. Just wide openness, God. Wide open surrender to your love and what you want to do with us in your love. What you want to show us. What you want to reveal to us, God. So open us up, God. Don't let us hide. Keep calling us out of hiding, God. I thank you, Lord, for what you are doing in this place today. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.